Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. My guest today is Christopher Childers. He is an assistant professor of history at Pittsburgh State University in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Chris, thanks for being on Historically Thinking today. Thank you, Al. So we're going to discuss uh, your book, The webster hayne Debate, Defining Nationhood in the Early American Republic. It's out from Johns Hopkins. It's part of a series called Witness to history. If I was Brian Lamb, I would then ask you all sorts of things about the series and witness to history and what is that and how did you get involved. But I'm not going to do that. I'll just, you know, I'll bracket that. That's that's the way that, you know, that's way, it could happen that way. Okay. Um, Webster Hain, um, as soon as I saw this title, it triggered certain memories. Um, there was an afterlife to this debate. This is now a very, I think it's safe to say, an obscure topic in political history. Um, for Amer- even in for Americans, and yet uh, 70 years ago, it was very far from being that. That's right. You've, That's thought, right. you've thought about this a little bit, I think. So um, describe what was its importance in people's heads really up until the 50s, I think. Well, so in 1830, when when Daniel Webster gives the his second reply to Robert Hayne and gives this stirring defense of American nationalism and, and nationhood, he really captures the American imagination in terms of trying to conceive what what does it mean to be a nation. Mm-hmm. And for 125 to 130 years, Daniel Webster's words really became the proof text for what American nationalism meant, that idea of liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable. Mm-hmm. And, and embodied in that, too, the idea that the people themselves had created this union. This isn't some creation of the states. This isn't this isn't something that individual states can can nullify or or destroy. This is the people's nation and they've created it. 
the the second reply to Hain then is is this speech in which he embodies all of these ideas, and and Webster knows exactly what he's doing when he sets this up mm-hmm. and delivers this stirring defense of, of nation. And we'll and, get to that. We're we're just we're just going there. We're doing this as a not a prequel. I don't know what the heck a back quote a flashback whatever okay. it is. Yeah. So okay. just to just to let the listener know if they're wondering what are they talking about, go ahead. <laughs> So, so Webster then his his speech becomes famous in terms of not only a stirring defense of nationhood, but also an incredible piece of political oratory. Yeah, and for 125, 130 years, American school children would memorize the last couple of paragraphs of of Webster's second reply to Hain. It would it would become a staple in public speaking and and declamation. And it comes it comes right before basically the Gettysburg Address and in, in those textbooks um, as a, the other thing that you would memorize. I, I imagine not in the American South. It, it seems not in the American South. <laughs> <laughs> it no. seems it seems to me that uh, much of how this the Webster's the the second reply to Hain is is based so much. It's it's like an oratorical battle flag of uh of the union uh, after the civil war it becomes a sort of statement of what should have been or what now is or something um as we'll see the, the last two paragraphs are webster waxing prophetic and imagining the destruction of the union and saying um it won't happen um of course everyone who in the 20s remember remembered it for re- recitations knew that it had happened so there's a very strange way in which it's um, it, it's it's being seen through that that memory. That's right, and I think one way that that's one way in which historical perspective makes a huge difference here. So after the Civil War, after this war to that really defines what American nationhood means, the 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 second reply takes on a different meaning because you look at it and you say, okay, there were a group of people who were trying to destroy that idea. Now, from the vantage point of 1830, when he gives the speech, this idea of nationhood that he's laying out there is is somewhat contested. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty dramatic in terms of how he's he's kind of ahead of his time in that sense. And and Hayne, of course, Robert Hayne from South Carolina is articulating a very different uh, notion of union. And we, we can talk about him in a little bit. There's a there's a spoiler. Yeah. Uh, individual in my story, a guy by the name of Edward Livingston, who in the <laughs> end kind of tells Webster and Hain, well, guess what? You know, we live in a country in which we made a compromise on what nationhood means. And both of you are right. And both of you are a little wrong. Hmm. The um, So let's go back to the beginning. Um, this okay. uh, the, the point to make with that is, is that even though this is, hasn't been heard uh, by many of our listeners, um, nevertheless, it uh, it stuck in the pop, even the popular culture and the school culture and the American memory. Maybe it. We were discussing before we began recording um, the sort of the rise of, of of the popularity of Jackson in the 30s and in the 40s and the 50s, um, thanks to Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and and others and sort of the 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 new Jacksonians that might have something to do with um, diminishing the the speech and its memory, but. Um, you're making the case that this is a tremendously important political act, even though it's just a series of speeches and that it is a, um, it is a conclusion of, um, of a confused, confusing politics of the basically 1818 to 1830. Is that, is that right? Is that, am I summarizing that? 
Absolutely. And and what I, what I tried to do in, in this book was to show the ways in which Northerners, Southerners, and then Westerners as well were grappling with this idea of how, how do we define what American nationhood really means? And for Northerners, it there had been a notion since the since the War of eighteen twelve that uh, they needed to that nationhood for them meant a a tightly knit nation in which there was a powerful national government. Southerners were walking away from that notion, and and then the West is is developing on its own and and embraces elements of both of those. The West desperately needs help to develop. As, as a section within the nation, yet they also tend to be pretty jealous in guarding their rights as as states, and and that throws a, a variable into the mix that I think that I think complicates the matter a great deal. Perhaps we should focus on you um, in a, a couple of places. I'm drawing on now chapters one and two. You cop you uh, focus or, or and refer to in some detail certain events of I think 1818 to 1820 1821 that begin to change the alteration the political dynamics in, in America. Um, this is the era that um, I've got Dangerfield's book over on the shelf there. The era of good feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there has the Federalist Party has collapsed. It no longer really exists. There are certain old Republicans who see themselves as being more of uh, in the tradition of Jefferson himself, Tom and John Taylor of Caroline. There are others who are the National Republicans. They're beginning to coalesce as a future party. You've got people. Henry Clay is one of them uh, at the time, uh, mm-hmm. but so is John Quincy Adams from an impeccably Federalist family. Um, so we've got a very strange moment in American history where there's only really one political party, um, and there are emerging factions within that party. Um, so it, the, because there's only one party, uh, oddly, it actually makes for more confusing politics, um, and figure out whose side are you on, what are the vehicles of power and avenues of power, and et cetera, et cetera. Then we've got an economic depression. What year does that come? 1819. 1819. So describe what's the nature of that economic depression? How does that compare this, to all the other good depressions in American history? <laughs> this is really America's first Great Depression yeah. in, in many respects. And it lasts uh, in the North. It, it It's done in about a period of two to three years in the South. The effects of it last longer than that mm-hmm. in some places in the South and, and certainly in the West as well. You can trace it to maybe four to five years long that this depression lasts like many economic depressions in American history. This one traces back to a land bubble or a real estate bubble, and it happened out west. There were a number of people who were investing in land, speculating in land deals out west, and were borrowing money to do it with the classic hope of we want to buy low now and sell high later. (laughs) The only wrinkle in this was that they were borrowing somebody else's money to do it. Uh, The Bank of the United States, which was kind of a precursor to our Federal Reserve System today. There's there's some real differences there, but that's kind of the short answer. We won't get into that right now. Go on. Yeah, we don't need to go there. (laughs) Uh, But at any rate, the Bank of the United States had been one of the major drivers in lending the money to make this happen. And then the bubble bursts in 1819. 
and you see widespread foreclosures and bank failures, business failures out west and in the north. The south sees um, dwindling markets and dropping agricultural prices as a result of this. And so it's it's a deep nationwide depression, really the first that we had seen yeah. The, the new constitution. It's interesting. I've heard Jay Cost in talking about his recent book on Madison Hamilton, talking about the second bank and saying how uh, Madison and well, I think it was Gallatin who basically came up with the idea of more branches for the second bank to make it more popular. Yet that made it actually more open to corruption and certainly to this sort of financial failure uh, because there were more branches for people to go to and uh, get loans from in order, and to make these land deals. That's right. Yeah. And and in the aftermath of this, then there is America sort of experiences a crisis of conscience here. Mm -hmm. If you if you go back into the sources and people are trying to explain why this happened, yeah. one of the regular themes that comes up over and over again is we got greedy. Mm -hmm. We we overextended ourselves and we need to return to this good old Republican simplicity of the founding generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you see that as a recurrent theme in all of this. Meanwhile, things have changed, and there's this major push toward national economic development to get out of the Depression and to, to foster the growth of a, of a nationwide economy. And that's Henry Clay's The American System. That's Henry Clay's The American System. That's John Quincy Adams, who's... The super American system. <laughs> yep. Uh, to a certain degree, it's James Monroe, the president of the United States, who is is somewhat nationalist in his economic and, outlook. And at the time, it's also John C. Calhoun. Correct. We'll it's get, John C. Calhoun, which is all the more puzzling. We'll get, we'll get to the we'll get to these characters in, in a minute. So we've got this uh, economic depression. We've got this plan for internal improvements for. Uh, at the time, it would be roads and canals. Correct. Um, That's right. Would it be any manufacturing assistance? What what or is it just basically infrastructure as we would think of it. So it, the American system's a three-legged stool. So okay. you have um, internal improvements, what today we would call infrastructure. You have national banking and national economic development. And then the third leg is the tariff, right. which the is tariff. the main means by which the federal government can foster the growth of, of industry. Now, there has been a tariff since the beginning. That's the only way the federal government makes money, correct? That's correct. What is starting to change, though, and Hamilton had talked about this, and then Henry Clay is going to pick it up at the end after the War of 1812 concludes, is that you're going to see these nationalists say, well, we can use the tariff not only as a means of raising revenue, mm -hmm. but we can use it as an economic tool to help foster economic development and the growth of American home industries. I want to get back to that uh, just in just a tick. Um, but the other uh, two more events of 1819 through 1821, um, both uh, equally momentous in their own way constitutionally. The first is the uh, Missouri crisis or the crisis over Missouri statehood. Um, you re probably remember this vaguely uh, from high school. I think I got a C on that quiz or at, at best. Um, that was over what? The Missouri crisis was over um, the extension of slavery into the the state of Missouri. Just the state, not the entire territory. The just the yeah, initially just the state. Mm -hmm. um, and so Missouri applies for statehood in 1819. Slavery had existed in Missouri during the territorial um, phase, so from 1811 to 1819. And a New York congressman by the name of James Talmadge introduces an amendment to the Missouri statehood bill that says. Sure, Missouri can become a state on the condition that it 
provides for the gradual abolition of slavery within its boundaries. And this leads to the, this then is what Thomas Jefferson calls uh, like an alarm bell ringing in the night. Um, fire bell in the fire night. Fire bell in the night. This is the terror. first time that there's been open dispute in Congress over slavery since really the Constitutional Convention. That's safe to say, just, yes. Just a, there's some other, it pops up now and again, but it's always interesting um, how for the first 25 years or more, how little the founders in the early republic and framers actually thought about slavery. Um, it's just, it's not as important as we would think that it would be to them. Um, it just doesn't come up, but now it does. Now it's an issue. And the compromise is that Maine will come in and it won't be a slave state. Um, what are, What's the other compromise? So the other part of the compromise is that Missouri comes in as a slave state. Right. But then the question comes up, well, what about the remainder of the Louisiana Purchase? Right. So Congress draws a line, and Congress says north of 36 degrees, 30 minutes north latitude, slavery will be prohibited within the remainder of the Louisiana Purchase. South of that line, slavery is permitted if the people want it. Well, what's south of the line? Arkansas and what would become Indian Territory, today mm -hmm. Oklahoma. Not much south of that line. and uh, But Southerners, amazingly in all of this, really don't balk at it. You mm -hmm. get some of the old Republicans out of Virginia who are upset and think that they've gotten a bad deal out of it. But mm -hmm. Missouri becomes a slave state. They look at that and they say that, well, that's the best we could hope for. You're not going to grow cotton north of 3630 in the Louisiana Purchase. Do you think that's why it is, uh, purely because of the cotton? I think I maybe not cotton solely, but in terms of agriculture, I think most Southern slaveholders looked at the remainder of the Louisiana Purchase and said, this is not going to be an area for, for natural expansion for yeah. for the slave empire. Well, it's, a, it's interesting that 30 years later, of course, people will be saying different things. Um, I think it has something to do with the defense of slavery as a positive good. Um, don't you? I mean, there's, there's That's exactly what it's about. And yeah. if you trace the, the origins of that argument, slavery as a positive good as an argument about the institution of slavery comes out during and after the Missouri crisis. Yeah, it, it drives it up. It, it, yeah. It, yeah, it, it, it makes it an argument for the first time. I was thinking when I was reading cer certain sections that made me want to go back to the cornerstone speech where uh, Alexander Stevens says, you know, even within our memory of, of several of us, we can imagine when we would basically uh, not speak of slavery as a positive good. And, That's right. uh, and he was, I mean, I'm sure he was thinking of this sort of moment. Uh, this is, the, he's referring to the 1820s, not the 1780s, not the 1790s, but even the 1820s. No, it's the 1820s is really the turning point in terms of that argument going from necessary evil to a positive good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's uh, talk about some. Oh, oh, McCullough versus Maryland. That's the third thing. And all these things, if it, it's interesting, I, I never, I don't know why I never put these all together as a big lump of all these things are happening at once. This is not invented by contemporary politics where things just all happen. Um, these are all happening at once. So McCullough versus Maryland comes up, what I have a note here, three days after the session. That's uh, correct. <laughs> three days, three after, days. <laughs> after the session over Missouri ends. Um, and the Senate uh, probably is, you know, drinking deep as they return to their uh, constituents. Um, and the Supreme Court issues McCullough versus Maryland. Um, again, r remind us what that was about. I think I saw a film strip on it. That was a while ago. <laughs> 
McCulloch versus Maryland has to do with a branch of the Bank of the United States that existed in Maryland. McCulloch, James McCulloch was the cashier of, of that bank. Today, we'd probably call him a regional vice president. Yeah. Um, but James, uh, the, the state of Maryland did not favor having a, B, a BUS branch within its, within its state boundaries, and they intended to use a tax to basically tax it out of existence. McCulloch sues on behalf of the Bank of the United States, and the case makes its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In the Supreme Court, John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the United States, writes the majority opinion, and he comes up, he coins this classic line that the power to tax is the power to destroy. He argues that the state of Maryland has no right to destroy a creation of the federal government, and the Bank of the United States, according to Marshall, is an instrument of, of the federal government. Therefore, the tax that Maryland had levied against the Bank of the United States was unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. The The underlying significance behind all this, you know, behind all the, the internal bank politics of this, is that Marshall has just issued a strongly nationalistic decision that one has defended the constitutionality of national banking and mm-hmm. of the Congress to charter a national bank. And two, it has really put the states in their place in terms of their power as compared to the federal government. Mm-hmm. It's a classic example of the supremacy of the federal government being articulated in a Supreme Court decision. Mm-hmm. So this causes a great deal of, of concern to whom this decision there are a great deal of people particularly in virginia those old republicans the states rights individuals who look at this and say this is yet another example of a federalist dominated supreme court that is trying to make the federal government supreme at the expense of the states that they are trying, in essence, to neutralize, to, to, to take away the power from from the individual states. And so you, you mentioned John Randolph earlier and mm-hmm. and some of those old Republicans out of Virginia. They're furious at this. They they look at this as as an example of, of federalist domination, trying to steal power from the states and trying to ignore states rights. So this is at the very beginning of the 1820s. Um, at this time, we've got um, about, we're going, I'm going to run through quickly the dramatis personae of five men, I think three of whom really aren't going to be prominent until the end of the 1820s, maybe actually four of them. Um, but the first of these are the combatants in the Webster-Hain debates, the um, Daniel Webster and... Is it John? I, no, I forget. I have to I have to look at it. John. Which which Hain? So Daniel, so Rob, Daniel Webster and Robert e. Y. Hain. So let's Robert go with Young Hain. Robert Young Hain. So let's go with Daniel Webster. Who is he? Um, Where does he come from? What's he all about? Daniel Webster, senator from Massachusetts. By this time, he has not only become an accomplished senator, but he is a very skilled lawyer mm-hmm. and. He practices both at the same time. He moonlights as a lawyer, even though he's a U.S. senator, because he needs the money. Um, Webster has an interesting past, though. If you take a look at Daniel Webster at the very beginning stages of his career, and he gets he gets started in politics around the time of the War of 1812. Webster early on is a New Englander, and at this moment in history, New England is kind of chafing 
under the Virginia dynasty of presidents. And the War of 1812 comes. Webster and the New Englanders are very upset about that war because they see it they believe that it's going to destroy the New England economy. They resist the war, and this culminates in the Hartford Convention that is held in, in Hartford, Connecticut in 1815, where the New Englanders propose a series of constitutional amendments that they believe will equalize the role of New England within the Union. Webster gets drawn into all of that, and as a result of the Hartford Convention, New England and the Federalist Party get branded as disunionists, mm -hmm. as maybe not quite secessionists, but that they aren't supportive of a union. And, and that becomes a real problem for New England. So that's important to the Webster-Hain debate because part of the backstory of all of this is Webster comes out with this beautiful defense of nationalism. And in some ways, he's trying to rehabilitate New England's image <laughs> as the guarantors of the union and trying to, to push away that stigma that has emerged from the Hartford Convention. So, Hain, who is he? Robert Hain is a rising star in, in South Carolina politics in the 1820s. He is he had married twice in his life. His first wife died, um, but he both times he married into prominent South Carolina families, and he kind of parlayed that into a political career. By the late 1820s, he's in the U.S. Senate, he is a protege of the vice president of the United States, John C. Calhoun, and in many ways is seen as sort of the intellectual son of, of Calhoun. Very much a, a states' rights, small government adherent, um, but by the 1820s, he's also picked up the label of nullifier because there are a group of individuals in South Carolina who are so upset about the tariff that they are threatening to to nullify it, to declare that it is null and void within the boundaries of South Carolina. And Hain has become a spokesman for that movement. So that's where Hain stands as of, of 1829 into 1830. Now, Hain is, in, in, in large part, he's a spokesman for that movement because the true spokesman can't speak. Uh, as vice president of the United States, he is president of the Senate. So uh, someone else must speak in his behalf, and that is Vice President John C. Calhoun, who's sort of at this day is 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 lurking uh, behind uh, the scenes, uh, the Darth Sidious of the uh, ne never mind the Webster Hain debate. Uh, <laughs> so uh, John C. Calhoun, one of the most interesting, um, most intellectual American politicians probably in history. No doubt about that. Uh, Calhoun is vice president of the United States, has had a very dynamic career up to this point. Uh, during, during the era of good feelings, he's in James Monroe's cabinet serving as secretary of war and proves himself a very able and efficient administrator in terms of that. Before, before that, during the War of 1812, he is, and in the lead up to that war, he is a, in Congress and he is part of a group of congressmen who are known as the War Hawks, who are calling for war with Great Britain to defend America's national honor. And by the 1820s, though, Calhoun, up to this point, had been a nationalist. Uh, he also tends to be, later on, <laughs> Southerners would have viewed him as being soft on the slavery question. When, when the issue of the Missouri crisis comes up and the Missouri Compromise gets pitched in Congress, 
Monroe, James Monroe, president, polls all of the members of his cabinet and, and asks them to answer a series of questions on, on its constitutionality. Calhoun states unequivocally that Congress has the right to restrict slavery in the territories. They may not have the right to do it within a sovereign state, but in terms of territory, they most certainly do. Uh, uh, later, just, that's going to yeah, and just without to point out that if that had been the position of of Calhoun or his heirs, say Jefferson Davis in the eighteen fifties, there would have been no civil war. There'd been there no there'd been, been no there'd been no Republican Party for that matter. That, since that's the, the the issue that the politics of the eighteen fifties revolve around. That's correct. And Calhoun, the the big change for Calhoun is going to start in the middle of the eighteen twenties. A lot of it has to do with the economic struggles that the South, and in particular South Carolina, faced. South Carolina really had a hard time emerging from the Panic of 1819, and the planters in South Carolina really struggled through much of the 1820s in terms of the economic aspects of, of, of the Cotton Empire and what they were trying to build down there. Calhoun has an intellectual change of heart in some ways, but also in other respects his change is rather pragmatic. Mm -hmm. He looks at the South Carolina electorate, realizes the direction they are heading, and I think realizes in his mind that if he doesn't change with them, he's going to be left behind. The, there are my people. I must follow them. I am their, <laughs> I am their leader. That's correct. Yeah. And so over the course of the mid to late 1820s, Calhoun starts to back away from the strong economic nationalism that he had espoused in the late 1810s in the post-war of 1812 era there. And also the nationalism that he put into focus as Secretary of War. I mean, he's one of the most, um, probably the most consequential Secretary of War prior to the to the Civil War. I mean, he's, he's a reformer, He's a, and he's a nationalist. Without a doubt. So in, in 1828, then, the South Carolina legislature is exploring its options over the tariff. And they ask Calhoun to draft a basically a constitutional statement on the right of nullification. He does that, but he does so anonymously because he's vice president of the United States. It it's it's a poorly kept secret. Early on, he's able to hide that he wrote it, but it doesn't take long for the for the news to break out. I think an undergraduate, if you could put side, side by side Calhoun's one of his speeches with that thing, would have wouldn't have a hard time figuring it out. Um, no, <laughs> you know, it's, Calhoun's pretty unmistakable with his use of the anyway. Yes, he is, yeah. and so um, ultimately, you know, he he writes this on behalf of the South Carolina legislature, but he has he has come out and essentially in, endorsing the nullifiers and endorsing the idea of nullification of of the tariff, and that's going to get him in serious trouble with Andrew Jackson. Well, let's get to, let's go for Andrew Jackson uh, right now, since you just brought him up. Uh, he's sure. pre he's present at this moment. Yet he's not really part of the debate. Um, he doesn't see that. Certainly, he does not see it. I don't think presidents in the nineteenth century would not have seen themselves as required to, or even uh, necessary for them to be ever involved in any congressional debate. Is that right? That's correct. And I think in many ways, you could they saw it as a separation of powers issue. Mm -hmm. that yeah. They did not want to get involved in in another branch of government's um, affairs. Now. Jackson eventually he would have no problem getting involved in all sorts of things, but that's another story. Yeah, um, but not at Jackson, this stage. Yeah, not at this stage. Uh, Jackson, 
becomes president in 18 he's he's elected president in 1828 and he will succeed John Quincy Adams who is strong economic nationalist uh, Jackson is is a states rights Jeffersonian in terms of his political outlook he's a westerner and that's going to be an added variable in all of this moreover Jackson and I think one of the reasons why he he remains quiet throughout much of this debate is that well he's he's against the American system pretty much in total he he opposes federal involvement in internal improvements he he's strongly opposed to national banking he had some very bad experiences with banking in in the panic of 1819 and its aftermath the tariff issue is a little complicated Jackson doesn't have a problem with what he might call a judicious tariff or a modest tariff, um, but he does not believe in the kind of, of protection that Henry Clay is talking about in terms of protecting northern industries. So in that, but in that sense, he's letting Congress deal with this issue, and he's kind of he's sidelined in terms of this debate. Mm-hmm. He will become important in the debates aftermath. It's interesting when you, I mean, insofar as Jackson has views on policy, which are sometimes difficult to tease out and that are not, uh, that are separable from his views on the personalities of those who propose that policy. Um, insofar as he has those views, they're quite a uh, grab bag. Uh, there's ways in which he's going to align. Ha- there's certain parts of his views that align with each one of the other characters in the story. Right. And, and this is what frustrates people who study Jackson today. He's a real conundrum on some of those issues. You can't peg him down mm-hmm. at times. You know, he, he just goes in several different directions. So finally, uh, our fifth personality, for those who are counting, Thomas Hart Benton, who, among other things, has the distinction of being someone who shot Andrew Jackson and, and lived to be senator. Yes, and, and not many people did that. No, no, they did not. <laughs> Benton is Benton is an incredible figure. He's he is in in this debate. He becomes the spokesman for the West. So he's a senator from Missouri, and Benton throughout the 1820s is pro Western in his outlook and is very much trying to get the government to assist the expansion of of the West. And we should probably say. Um, by West, you and I are referring to what we would call the upper mid the Midwest and the upper South. I think. Yes, that's yeah, and that's a good clarification to make here. Tennessee We're, and Kentucky, we would consider part of the West. Strangely enough, people would refer at the time to the Southwest, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama. But that's not really that's the South even at this time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So no, that's that's the area we're talking about here, and Benton is is trying his best to promote growth in in Missouri and really along what at that time would have been the Western frontier. So kind of going back to how we look at these people in terms of the American system, Benton's complicated on this. Missouri is a frontier state needs internal improvements. It needs connections back to the east. So his stance on internal improvements is complicated. On the one hand, he doesn't like federal intervention, but on the other hand, he likes the he likes the funding, he likes the money. Uh, in terms of the tariff, he's going to be staunchly opposed to it because he sees it as anti-development in the West. Banking, it's very clear he is opposed to the bank to national banking because Missourians in particular had suffered pretty dramatically in the aftermath of the Panic of 1819. 
Benton's going to ignore that a lot of it was their own fault that they became overextended, but he blames the banks for it. Hmm. And so that's where he falls in terms of these issues. And that's how he's going to get involved in this debate. And we should also, I should, I didn't, have, I didn't plan on mentioning him. I don't know how I could have avoided it, but Henry Clay is the other great Western politician. And he is the man who the, well, he's been Speaker of the House. He's Senator from Kentucky. He is the leader of the National Republican um, faction. Uh, and he's the man who's put forward this American system of internal improvements, tariff and bank. Clay's fingerprints are all over this. Yeah, and, he, he doesn't take a direct part in the debate. As I as as I understand it, no, he does not. But it's you know his economic program is really at the heart of what the debate's all about. So this this moment begins in 1830 with a New Englander trying to slow down land sales in the West, right. sales of federal land. Uh, why would a New Englander care, and why would Westerners care about slowing down land sales? A New Englander would care about slowing down land sales because to a New Englander like Samuel Foote of Connecticut, he's the one who gets this whole thing started. The outflow of people to the western frontier was a net drain on the New England economy. Mm -hmm. New England is transitioning to an industrialized manufacturing economy. They need workers. And this is really before the great age of immigration that would come in the 1840s and 1850s. For a New Englander like Foote, all these people moving out west draws away vital human resources and people and money from New England. And so he looks at this and he sees he sees this unrestrained westward expansion as a drain on America's industrial economy. Does he think in the, precisely those explicit ways about drain, the population drain away from factories? He's not going to be that explicit about it in his speeches, but you can read it into them implicitly. Is it? Okay. He, and, and, and the way he's going to do it and, and the resolution that gets this whole thing started is that Foote is going to say, look, one, we need to halt any further land sales in the West. We are selling too much land. We are, we're, not, we're not providing for a, an orderly settlement of the West. And we're, in essence, the government's not getting its dollars worth out of all of this land because we're just pushing for expansion. That's interesting. The first two parts of that argument are features of um, New England Federalist arguments about Western expansion going back to the 1790s. That's sort of a high Federalist argument, like Rufus King, I believe, is against, um, he's in some ways against Western expansion because it will create a different nation, a different nation of interests. So the multiplicity of interests is always a, is a fear to certain New England Federalists. Yes, it is. And, and Foot picks up on that. And hmm. he really, I think in some ways you can say he picks up where Rufus King leaves off in that sense. Mm -hmm. So the, now the other part of this is purely a political move. So Foot says, well, I, I want to stop westward expansion here, or I want to at least put the brakes on it. Uh, how do I do that politically? Hmm. I abolish the position of surveyor general. Hmm. <laughs> so you abolish the, the office of the person who actually goes out there and parcels out the land and, and packages it for sale. And if you do that, that's going to halt any further land sales. So tidy, so logical, so uh, uh, unlikely to work. Has he, has he never heard of squatting? But anyway. <laughs> little problem there, yes. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's why a New Englander wants to slow down land sales. The... Um, 
The reaction from Westerners like Benton is, is, is obvious, and indeed, it's exactly what one might anticipate. Um, how do Southerners get involved in this dispute? Why isn't this just going on between New Englanders or the Northerners and uh, Westerners? This is a perfect marriage of interests. Hmm. Okay, Or so they think. Or so we think. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, the Westerners are opposed to New England's political agenda because they want to continue. The Westerners want to continue to promote expansion and the sale of lands in the West. The South, on the other hand, is opposed to New England because New England is pushing as hard as it can for for more tariffs to to help their economy. So Robert Hain senses an opportunity here. And and he's not the only Southerner who does this, but Hain senses it beautifully in, in terms of this debate here. If I can ally with the West, if I can find an ally in the Senate who represents Western interests, and we can both, in essence, gang up on New England, we can beat them back. We can beat back the tariff for the West. They, we can beat back halting land sales and halting westward expansion, and South and West together can strike an important political gain against New England. And that's really the pitch that Robert Hayne makes to Thomas Hart Benton. In in the debate, in the debate, yes. Okay. That's so. That's his Hain, first speech. Go on. It's his first speech. That's yeah. Robert Hayne's first speech, and so he lays out the case of how the South is an injured section, how the tariff has provided vast economic benefits to New England at the expense of Southerners, and then he throws in this added carrot to Thomas Hart Benton and to the Westerners, saying. And in New England is going after the West as well. They are trying to halt land sales. They're trying to halt westward expansion. And so we have a common enemy here, and we need to band together and stop this. So Daniel Webster comes up to the Senate floor from the Supreme Court mm-hmm. uh, on that during at the tail end of that speech, and as yep. you describe it, and with his paper shoved under his arm, and listens to this and thinks to himself the 1830 version of it's go time. Um, he's been waiting. You, you say you make it very clear how he had been waiting for this moment. Uh, what was the moment and how had he been preparing for it? Webster had been waiting for the right moment to articulate some ideas that he had been developing on nationalism. He had been watching the nullifiers lay out their argument in over time. He, he read Calhoun he, he, he understands what they're arguing, and so Webster is looking for the right opportunity in the Senate to strike a blow against the nullifiers, against states' rights, and to really strike a blow for New England as the, the champion of American nationalism and nationhood. So Webster sees it when Robert Hayne tries to make this alliance between South and West here. The irony in all of this, too, and Webster notes this, is that just days before Robert Hayne gives this speech attacking national economic development, Hayne had approached Webster and had asked him for his support for legislation that would have provided federal funds toward building a railroad in South Carolina. (laughs) And the irony is beautiful. So Webster hears this. He's incredulous. He says, you know, this guy was making this argument just days before to me, and now he's railing against me and railing against New England on the floor of the Senate. Game on. 
And that's when that's when Webster delivers his first reply to Robert Hayne. So what does he do in the first reply? How, how long? So if we go from the there's Hayne speaks, Webster gives her a first reply, then Hayne second speech and then mm-hmm. Webster's second reply. So we're, we're talking about four speeches. How long do these go on? How, how for what sort of a week or, or what? The, yeah, the the initial the debate between Hain and Webster runs from January nineteenth to January the twenty sixth. So you're talking about a week of time, and there's a weekend in there. The, the The speeches all run between a day and a day and a half. A day. And, so how many hours in each speech for each speech? Oh, you could be talking about um, four to six hour long speeches. So that was a, a whoa, that's a hundred words a minute. Um, so yes. how long are they? How many how many words do the complete speeches add up to? They, you know, honestly, I didn't count yeah. them in terms of words, but you're talking. Oh my goodness, you're probably talking fifteen, twenty thousand words at a minimum in some of these speeches. And the there is a there's a published collection of the major speeches because Webster and Hayne aren't the only ones who are who are speaking. After them, a whole host of senators get involved. That collection, which doesn't include all of them, runs three hundred pages. It, now it's it, hard for us. It's a great leap of imagination for people that don't read about this stuff. And we sort of take it on faith if we're reading about these speeches, you know, that that people did this. But other people are just going to be what someone list, someone could give a speech for three hours. They expected this. Yeah, they expected it. You know, and even in terms of campaign speeches at this time, people expected to come out and hear a speech in the morning and eat lunch and then hear more in the afternoon. Yeah, it's when you read about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, right? It went on for like four hours, but there are speeches before and afterwards. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So... Uh- um, so Hain and Webster, that's that's how they're doing this. And it's um, I know Webster, I don't know if this early in his career, he would basically have these things already laid up with the printer, uh, ready to be uh, published and go to every uh, corner of the nation. So these are not merely uh, oratorical events, although they, they most certainly are oratorical events, but they're also to be published and to spread the, the political world word. That's correct, though in one in one respect he deviates from that in the second reply. He knows that's such a momentous speech that he wants to go back after he delivered the speech and he he re- does a carefully edited version of it. Okay, that in uh, some ways is inferior to the one that was reported in the in the congressional debates. Huh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. It is interesting. How, why he does that? So, is this an event? I mean, Washington's a small town at the time, uh, and we I guess we have to get the idea in our head that this is something. This is this is like watching go seeing the heavyweight fight. They use another now dated sort of uh, sporting event. Um, people really want to see this. This becomes an event. So Hain, Haynes first speech seems like a normal, you know, normal episode in, in the life of the Senate. Okay. Uh Yeah. Webster picks up on that and Webster hatches this idea to, to turn the terms of the debate away from a rather esoteric debate on Western land sales into a debate over states rights versus nationalism. Uh When Webster gets involved, people start paying attention. Uh So Webster's first reply to Hayne draws a significant audience. Because there were a number of people who knew what Webster was up to. He had told people. And he had from told, there it yeah. escalates. He had told them. Yes. Yeah. He had told them. So and, so, and from there it escalates. And he is taking the opportunity to now go after the um, statement on nullification that Calhoun has anonymously written. Um, in yes. many ways, he is able to precipitate a constitutional crisis just with speeches on the Senate floor. Wow. 
I mean, yeah. it's really quite extraordinary. He can he can build up such public interest in this uh, that all the stuff that's going to happen in many ways is due to this. I, I it, to due to this sort of choice to give a speech. That's right, and and one of the reasons why he's able to do this too, and this is something that's that's really just truly unique to this particular moment, mm-hmm. is that so many of the antagonists are right there in the room. It is extraordinary, and it is an extraordinary moment. And this people were like the only the most recent over four hundred and fifty years to note the people who are all there in that room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Haynes there. Yeah. Calhoun is sitting in the vice president's chair. Yeah. Webster, of course, is there, but you have all of these individuals who are who are there on the Senate floor watching this happen. Henry Clay is there, and also the uh, concentration of oratory is pretty impressive as well. De Tocqueville didn't think didn't think much of it the next year, but then he didn't hang out for very long, and he wasn't at a moment like this either. They they didn't happen that often, I guess, even in this period. No, it didn't happen that often. Uh, you know, and in terms of Webster's oratorical career, uh, this this made him. However, the the precursor to this was he delivered the the eulogy for John Adams in mm-hmm. 1826. That gave people a taste of what he was capable of. But keep in mind that you know that's four years before yes. the, the Webster Hain debate. So that he, gives you a sense of he kind of the come timing. to a prominence with I think the eulogy for the Bunker Hill Monument. Yes, and then after doing so well there, he become sort of a local celebrity. Then he give in in Boston. So is it, now he's a New England orator, and then the the eulogy for Adams makes him sort of a national level orator. That's uh, right. When this is this is very important to people, um, and such people are known. Uh, you he he even has a special costume for when he gives the big speech. What, what is it? It's a, he wears a white cravat. He wears a, a buff colored vest and a navy blue blazer with bright gold buttons on it he calls it his oratorical costume <laughs> and if you take a look at the the giant painting that gpa healy did of it's called webster replying hain it hangs in faneuil hall in boston that's the picture of him in his oratorical costume he healy nailed it in terms of describing what what other people reported in words, what did, what made Webster so compelling as a speaker? Because it's obvious that people who heard him speak fell in love with him as a speaker, even though they might despise everything he said. <laughs> You're I mean, absolutely Cal- right. Calhoun describes that more or less. I mean, you know, you know, everything I've read about Webster and his speech making ability indicates a couple of things. One, he has a slow wind up. Uh-huh. A lot of the great speeches that he gave, you, you'll as people reported them, they'll talk about how he starts off. He starts off slow. He starts off. It seems like this is a, a rather a good, but a rather ordinary speech. But then he starts running his hands through his hair, <laughs> and the eyes. Everybody talked about the eyes. He had these very dark eyes, and he had this black hair um, that that eventually would be standing up in a shock on top of his head because often he runs his hands through it. But the eyes would start to flash. Then the voice would deepen, and he would just build he's got to ba- this crescendo. He's got a bass baritone, or yeah. Yeah, okay. he's he's got a he's got a bass baritone voice. It resonates very well. Everybody describes that. You know, that's one of the other attributes of of his speech making. And 
it just all of the cumulative effect of all of that builds to a crescendo and people would talk about how they felt like he was he was speaking to them mm-hmm. but they could also they could see the emotion in his face and they could hear it in his voice and i do urge you to go look for a picture of him there's some early portraits um the the famous black dan portrait uh, yeah. the go- the godlike Daniel or or the later photographs I think done within a couple of years of his death or a year of his death when he yes. looks he's the spitting well actually I should Sam the Eagle of the Muppets it's a spitting image of Daniel Webster That's the, <laughs> he is it's like it's, yes, a, it is. it's a tribute to Daniel Webster in some ways uh, right the br- the brow the nose everything is just that's it's right da- it's Daniel Webster um, so this week long debate what is the result of it. Okay, so the result of it is we we have Hain gives his first speech. Webster gives his first reply. Webster's first reply is probably the more cutting of the two speeches that Webster gives. And really the highlight of that first reply is that Webster just portrays himself as incredulous at the fact (laughs) that Hain is attacking the notion of American nationhood. He, he, in essence, he says, all that Hain will talk about is this idea of consolidation, how the, the, the national Republicans are trying to consolidate this union at the expense of the state. And Webster says, what is he afraid of? And Webster makes the case for economic nationalism and for political nationalism in this. And once he makes the case, he says, what's he afraid of? Why do they want to nullify this? And that ends the, that ends the first reply. Payne comes back and then tries to attack Webster and the New Englanders as being the true disunionists, as being the ones who really are trying to violate the sanctity of the union. And he goes into the Hartford Convention and all of this ancient history about what the New Englanders had been up to. Unfortunately for Hain, he trips himself up in several places in the course of that second speech he gives. And... To us, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but to a lawyer like Daniel Webster, it provided some pretty critical openings. He he misdefines nullification and, and misdefines how it could apply in certain ways. Calhoun even picks up on this and kind of regrets it later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hain largely misses the opportunity to refute Webster in that in that second speech that Hain gives. It's the layup then for Webster's second reply. And Webster in the second reply meets all of those criticisms of of himself, of New England, and really tries to cement the image that he has portrayed of New England as the guarantor of of the real American nationalism. And then he finishes off with that that peroration at the end, you know, um, talking, as you alluded to earlier, talking about the horrors of civil war. What would happen if nullification and disunion really came to fruition? And then finishes the speech with liberty and union now and forever, one and inseparable. Mm Mm-hmm. And Hain knows he's been beaten. Hain what, knows. How does how does Hain know that he's been beaten? <laughs> Hain, Hain knows from the reaction in the gallery. Uh-huh. The Senate chamber is packed that day for the second reply. There are there are people up in the gallery. There are spectators sitting on the floor. Some senators had complained that they couldn't get to their seats because <laughs> there were people sitting in their seats. And afterward. Hain Hain can tell from from the response to it that that Webster had just nailed it in in this 
in in his argument and how he had engaged in his oratory. The story goes the next, I believe it was the next morning, um, Hain had cut, had had run into Webster and and uh, Webster asked him how he was doing and he said, "Well, <laughs> none too well, given what you did to me yesterday." <laughs> <laughs> After the speech, Hain was rumored to have remarked to somebody, "You know, Daniel Webster ought to die right now because you can never top that." Yeah, you know, yeah. and so Hain knew, huh. <laughs> and Calhoun knew as well. Calhoun knew that Hain had been bested. Um, what was the um, reaction then? What was the what was the immediate consequence after Hain being beaten? Um, did this because um, the South Carolina nullification crisis follows on to this with in with what distance in time? A couple months or? Well, the South Carolina nullification crisis unfolds over an incredibly long period of time. Okay. So, too, does the debate itself. So, Webster and Hain are done by the 26th of January, yet the Webster-Hain debate proper, or mm-hmm. the, the whole thing, goes on until late spring. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my one of my favorite remarks about this comes from the historian Merrill Peterson, who, who wrote about this, and he said the, the – the other senators got involved, and at that point, the buzzards had descended to feast on the carrion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, the rest of the speech making is pretty uninspired. Mm-hmm. the The next big event, though, after the after the debate plays out, and after Webster and Hain go at it, everybody starts wondering where's Andrew Jackson and all right, of this. Right, and and Jackson's famous answer to that comes at the jefferson day dinner so that's april 13th of, of yeah, that, 1830 of 1830 okay so just uh b- 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 february so just a month and a half after webster and hayne are done with their um debates that's correct while the other debate sorry while the other debates are still ongoing okay yeah yeah there there's still some speech making going on but everybody's looking to jackson mm-hmm. to to try to get a sense of what how's he going to respond to this and he he gives his famous response in the form of a toast staring at, directly at john c calhoun at the jefferson day dinner raises his glass and says our federal union it must be preserved hmm. and that's the end of that well, yes. not well, really. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> just the beginning. So, uh, where would you end the story then? I mean, what what's the result of all this? The end result of it all, it really it culminates in in the in the nullification crisis. So, so by 1832, okay. South Carolina is ready to nullify the federal tariff law. Not incidentally, the governor of South Carolina in 1832 is none other than Robert Hayne. Check that out. How about and, that? Yeah. And the state issues an ordinance of nullification. They nullify the federal tariff law. And Andrew Jackson responds to this by asking Congress for what has become known as the force bill, mm-hmm. giving him authorization to use military force if necessary to compel South Carolina to obey federal law. The interesting part of the force bill and all of this, and, and Jackson delivers a message to Congress on this, the force bill message as it's known, that was written by a senator from Louisiana named Edward Livingston. Mm-hmm. Edward Livingston had given by far the most interesting of the additional speeches in the Webster-Hain debate. 
Okay, so Webster and Hayne got done what there's other people droned on and on about constitutional theory. And then Edward Livingston gave an address. Who's a New Yorker from that the family of – enormous family of Livingstons who's, I guess, gone to Louisiana. So people won't yes. have to ask, which Livingston are you? Yes, that's right. So he's he's from the New York Livingstons. He comes down to Louisiana and becomes a senator. And Livingston gives this speech in which he argues that Webster's right on some points and Haynes right on some points. That in in fact this system of federalism that the founders created is really quite complicated. We have to somehow integrate both states' rights and nationalism and make it work. Okay. And it's not always consistent, it's not always pretty, but that's the system we've gotten. And Livingston lays that out in really nice terms in his speech. It's it's really the gem of the rest of those speeches. Mm-hmm. Well, several years later, by the time of 1832, um, Livingston is poised to become an ambassador to the court of St. James, but he is also a political confidant of Andrew Jackson. Jackson asks for his help in composing the force bill message. Hmm. And so Livingston comes back and and writes the force bill message for Jackson in which he lays out his case for compelling South Carolina to obey federal law. Hmm. It's a fascinating story how it plays out. It, it is. Um, what's what the line that Jackson said? He would hang the first, I forget, I forget, but anyway, it was some threat of violence. And he legend, I don't think he actually said this, but he said that one of the worst mistakes of his life was never sh- killing John C. Calhoun, wasn't it? Or shooting him? I think. That's That's been attributed to him. It's probably apocryphal. Yeah, but probably yes. apocryphal. I'm sure he thought it. Yes, he thought it. Yeah. You, can, you can count on that. You can count on that. The list of people that he probably wished he had shot is, is long. Um, <laughs> so this is, um, this had, uh, this in many ways, um, served to establish a certain direction in politics for at least the next 30 years um, and maybe even 40 if we go take it all the way to the Civil War. Um, it's an inflection point in, in history, uh, as you would argue, and as the, uh, in fact, the series Witness to History would argue that these are certain moments where things like this happen. Um, why is it important, do you think, to examine such moments in American political history? In this case, Examining the tension between states' rights and nationalism is important because it has such obvious influence in in present-day politics. We're we're still dealing with that issue of what does federalism mean in in the American constitutional system. The, The things we argue about it over have changed, but the underlying argument is still there. And the way in which Webster and Hayne grapple with that is almost sort of two ends of a continuum, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, on the one hand, these ultra-states writers who are threatening nullification in, in the 1830s. And then on the other hand, Daniel Webster, who in many ways would rather gloss over the, the, the scope and power of the states – all of that plays a plays a role in this, and we're and we're still having those arguments today. That that's one of the things that drew me to write the book. Quite yeah. honestly, sure, was that I wanted to examine that tension in in the context of early nineteenth century history because it hasn't gone away. No, it is certainly a continuing debate, and it's interesting uh, depending on who the president is. Um, parties get different, uh, get more more enthusiastic for federalism uh, based on who has power in the executive branch. 
and that and that's good. Uh, that everyone can at least be half the time they can be in favor of federalism. <laughs> um, but what it is interesting, I I don't want to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but as I was reading this, I thought uh, Twitter does not allow you to consider on things uh, and reflect on things. Um, there is something suited. It maybe it does require three-hour speech to carefully work through ideas and thoughts and work out a a public political philosophy as well as a rationale for action. Um, and it made me feel nostalgic for at least that part. And me I, too. I did not I did not expect I did not expect to feel that way. No, it, it certainly made me feel that way, too. And I think one of the things you can see in terms of of the debate as it plays out is parts of the speeches seem incredibly mundane. Mm-hmm. It, they, they're going into minute historical detail, trying to make a case. But you as you read them, you can see them working through these ideas mm-hmm. in a way that, as you put it, the. 180 characters doesn't allow you to do that. I think it, it might even be worse than that. It, it's not the technology. It's the, um, it's the, they had a great belief in persuasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least in the Senate at that time, and perhaps this was the politics of the 1820s as well, where there was not yet party divisions or at least straight up and down ideological divisions. They could persuade people. Um, and um, I don't think anyone believes in persuasion now. I think everyone's u- united of all political factions in 2018 are united in not wanting to bother with persuasion. Well, and persuasion requires deliberation. It you know, does, and, and, and time. And the Senate has this aura about it, or at least it did, of being the greatest deliberative body in the world. Mm. Uh, you hear that i think you know robert bird who was you know one a senator and one of the great historians really of the of the senate would speak about it in those terms and and webster and hayne are are really embodying that in this because they're they're trying to persuade through this process of of deliberation mm-hmm. yeah my guest today has been chris childers uh, chris thanks so much for joining us thank you al For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 